It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. On Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, 22-year-old Lakin Riley was found murdered on the campus of the University of Georgia. Lakin's body was discovered at 12.38 p.m. that day in a forested area near the school's intramural fields. Authorities revealed that Lakin was killed by blunt force trauma to her head. However, the exact cause of death has yet to be revealed. The suspect, 26-year-old Jose Antonio Ibarra was arrested by police the following day. According to authorities, Ibarra illegally immigrated to the United States from Venezuela in 2022. Ibarra has been charged with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated battery, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, kidnapping, hindering a 911 call, and concealing the death of another. Lakin was a nursing student at Augusta University, She is remembered as a great friend and a loving daughter. Joining me once again today is my friend, attorney, retired NYPD inspector, and Fox News contributor, Paul Morrow. Paul, I'm looking at the affidavit right now, and there are two counts that I wanted to draw your attention to so we could help explain to listeners. Um, And I'll start with, with this one first, which is that in the offense of aggravated battery, The affidavit says that he maliciously caused bodily harm to another by seriously disfiguring her body or a member thereof by disfiguring her skull. Can you share with us what that might mean? As we know so little yet, the autopsy results have not been released. What we know thus far is all from this arrest affidavit. And this fact stuck out to me as being severe. Yeah, so one of the other charges also mentions the fact that he used a quote-unquote object. So, you know, taking for granted here that um, he used the object to disfigure her and it was apparently really a crime of opportunity because they don't seem to have known each other. The question becomes, why so much anger? Why so much passion? And it is very discomforting because generally when you're going to see this kind of anger and this kind of passion, you know, it's going to be a domestic, it's going to be something where the two people are known to each other. Who explodes in a way like this out of nowhere for no discernible reason? People, for lack of a better term, who end up being things like serial killers. And you have to say to yourself, if he managed to become this animal for no reason with somebody he didn't know once, would he have done it again? Now, we don't know that, and hopefully we'll never know that because he's never getting out and, in fact, may even face the death penalty. But it is, to me, very troubling that you have this level of uh, violence, and there doesn't seem to be any indicia of any kind of a sexual assault. So it, it just seems to be a vicious, brutal murder predicated on nothing. And that makes it, I think, all the more troubling. I mean, you know, it's troubling no matter how you slice it because obviously a promising young woman is dead. But it is just really a a revolting event that doesn't seem to have been precipitated by anything. And that argues you have a real broken toy here. Can I ask you, there's really a litany of charges 
right now that the suspect is facing. To your point, it does not include any form of sexual assault or rape. Could that be amended? And is it typically, especially in Athens-Clark County, pending autopsy results? Can we expect some type of update in charges that would include a sexual assault after a further investigation of the body has been performed? Or generally at this stage, is it expected to be concluded? So they're being very cautious. The uh, affidavits that were released, these are just probable cause statements that don't really give us a whole lot of uh, detail. It's just enough to support the charge so that they can keep him in under these charges. Um, But, you know, of course, there will be an autopsy, as you say, and Austin is known to be a very progressive jurisdiction. Uh, Excuse me, I meant Athens, Georgia, which is apparently, from what I understand, it tends to be very open in their dissemination of information. So we may get that. Um, We may get the autopsy results. We may get a further statement. For now, very clearly, they just want to make sure they put their case together in a way that uh, there's no slippage. They have both the malice aforethought murder, which is the top charge of murder in Georgia, which does carry the death penalty potentially, but they also charged non-malice murder, which is not a lesser included charge. It is a separate charge, which means that if they have to pivot to that, they will. But the possibility of there being a sex assault charge uh, later after they do an autopsy and a further examination, sure, always possible. You can supersede um, an indictment even if they've gotten that far down range. Um, right now, he hasn't been indicted. He remains just the accused. But um, And he's innocent until proven guilty. But um, they can always amend the charges as they learn more. The other charge then that I wanted to ask you about... So the charge of preventing or hindering another person with intent to cause physical harm from making or completing a 911 telephone call. Mm. And I wanted to ask you if there is any evidence, did Lakin attempt to call 911? Is there actually a 911 call? Did she connect? Is there, what is the evidence supporting this particular charge that we know of? So it's got to be something related to uh, the 911 call either, you know, being clearly attempted or in fact, it went all the way through to the point of a connect because it's a fairly arcane charge and for them to add it, they must have strong indicia that this occurred. So what are the possibilities? Well, you know, when they got a hold of her phone, they may see a 911 call that gets cut off just in the metadata of the phone. Uh, taking that continuum further, you may have something where the phone connects, they hear her trying to talk and then the line goes dead. Or perhaps maybe most discomforting is the fact that she makes the call, the call connects, and then he, while attacking her, she has to drop the phone and the entire thing is on tape because 911 calls are recorded everywhere in this country. So, you know, um, I hope that we never have to hear that tape. Um, Certainly for the family, I hope they never have to hear that recording. On the other hand, that recording would be really powerful evidence. And I think that's probably why they added that charge, because it's a much lower charge than all the other stuff. But um, and it can always come in as evidence anyway. But um, I think the fact that they added speaks to the fact that there must have been something that really jumped out at them. And they said, we're going to add that charge because it's here clearly. Um, And so as as sort of uncomfortable as it is, I think there's a very good chance that she at least connected to 911, if I had to guess. So there's no way and forgive me if I'm belaboring the point. There's no way that you could fit this charge in by a perp taking a cell phone and throwing it. If 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 it, could that charge be made, or would there have to be either to your point a connect, or perhaps the first number of nine plugged in? Does there have to be a, an overt move toward calling nine one one to have this charge be in effect? I would think the latter, um, okay. because the way the language is articulated here. 
did physically prevent or hinder another person with intent to cause physical harm from making or completing a 911 telephone call. So he is stopping her from making the call while intending to physically harm her. So it's not like, okay, he just stole her phone from her, mm-hmm. grabbed it off of her, it never connected or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, under the language here that supports the probable cause for the charge, very clearly it makes out a case that he did something physically that stops her. And interestingly, the charge carries with it intent to cause physical harm. So it wasn't even so much that he grabbed the phone from her. He fought with her somehow to keep her from making the 911 call. That'll also, that also argues in teasing this out, and this is in some of the other charges as well, that there's going to likely be a lot of physical evidence. His DNA is almost certainly under her fingernails, I would say. Um, he dragged the body, apparently. That's one of the other charges here, a concealment charge. So you probably have his footprints, things like that. Um, he probably had dirty clothing. Um, there's going to be no shortage of physical evidence here. They got there very quickly. Kudos to the campus police. They got there within under a half hour after she was reported missing. So, and from what I've read, looks like they processed and 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 um, sounded, they 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 made sure that the uh, they secured the crime scene well. Um, I've seen some language already where it says, okay, this perimeter is secure, that perimeter is secure. So they were very cognizant of the fact that they had a serious crime scene here. So I think that they're going to dot every I, cross every T. And if you don't charge this for the death penalty, then why do you even have the statute? Georgia hasn't used it since 2020. COVID put it on the shelf. They've had some up and downs with the use of lethal injection, which is what their preferred method is. But I think even in a progressive jurisdiction like Athens, um, there's going to be a lot of pressure to bring that here. And uh, I think as more details come out, I think that becomes a greater possibility. Two cases were called to mind in your answers just now. Uh, One, the 1997 railroad serial killer um, attempted murder of Holly Dunn and the murder of her boyfriend at the time, Chris Meyer. It happened at a railroad track in Kentucky. And the perp who had similar demographics here, but used a large, a very large rock right. to kill Chris. And that's ten, I think that's what a lot of us have been thinking here, that he picked up a rock. So, yeah. That's right. And then the second was the Polly Class kidnapping and murder case from 1992, where it became known that the perp uh, used to hang out in a park that was sort of kitty corner to the house and could look into Polly's bedroom, which he eventually abducted her from. Right. So he spent hours watching. And when, and when you go to Ibarra's or see the footage of Ibarra's apartment, there is a direct path straight from his apartment building mm. into this running trail. Into mm. the, he, It's a short path, an easy walk. Yeah. So my point is it calls to mind both of those cases, the opportunity where at the end there's a brutal murder. Yeah. But the opportunity seems so spontaneous, and I think that's what's difficult for everyone to stomach as well. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, you know, yeah, let's contrast it, let's say, with the Idaho case, the Brian Koberger case, where he's accused of the murder of the four uh, co-eds in, yeah. in, the, um, in the house. The parking lot in the back of that house, and it's pretty much acknowledged that he came in through the sliding doors in the back, um, that offered an easy vantage point to see into the second floor of that house um, reportedly, from what I've been told, uh, he was so close to that house so many times that his own phone hit their Wi-Fi about a dozen times. So that argues he was stalking them, and that's a lot more premeditation. Here, it does seem like it may not have been quite so um, planned out, right? 
crime of opportunity, as all of us are saying. But, you know, you make some interesting points, Emily, because if there is a short path to this running trail, and this is something that he could have done previously in the sense that he could have gone and, and sort of surveilled the running track, for lack of a better term, then what's to say that he did not watch her take her daily run or others take their daily run? I know she wasn't a student at the school. She was a student at a different school, but she used to be there. And um, maybe he watched other students take their daily run. And um, it was just um, Miss Riley's unfortunate um, bad luck to, to be the person that he decided to fix it upon that day. So, look, you know, we don't know what he said. We don't know. Um, there's, you know, there's a very good chance that um, he didn't immediately invoke. He wouldn't be necessarily aware of his Miranda rights. That potentially raises a language issue. His defense is probably going to say he wasn't properly Mirandized because he his English is probably very poor. That always comes up in these circumstances. So hopefully the Athens PD got a Spanish speaker to Mirandize him uh, before they interviewed him, um, assuming that they did and assuming he made any statements. Now, that doesn't mean that the case will be blown because there's likely so much physical evidence that the case will survive without it. But um, he may have made statements that indicate that he did what you seem to suggest here, which is a quite a possibility, and I have to confess I hadn't considered, but for all we know, he had been hanging out and stalking that running path all along here and then just fixated on, on one victim. Yeah, or at least that possibility of that. What you just mentioned sort of brings up then another conversation topic. Um, we talked about the demographic here, and Ibarra is an illegal immigrant. We talked about the similarities between Holly Dunn, who's perp, um, in addition to being held responsible for at least 15 other murders, was also an illegal immigrant, as well Molly Tibbetts' murder in 2018, a young woman in Iowa. Um, and the AP has been criticized recently for covering the similar murders mm. of Molly Tibbetts and Lake and Riley and failing to acknowledge the immigration status of the convicted murderer and suspect, respectively. What do you make of that? And as a detective, is it important to know that? Is it important for a community to know that kind of status so that they can execute certain policies or practices to remain safe and especially knowing whether their city is, for example, a sanctuary city where they then realize that their local police will not cooperate with ICE and the like? Tell us your make on that. I, I, it's repulsive. I'm not going to be, um, you know, I'm not going to equivocate here. Um, you know, look, one of the things that we should recognize here is that inordinately the victims in these instances are women. And so as these media outlets bend over backwards to adhere to the politically correct policy line, party line, whatever you want to call it, they are undermining one of their own foundational positions. And that is believe all women, Right. So, you know, look at all the cases that you just cited. I mean, all of those are female cases, all the female victims. So, no, it's repugnant. And, you know, there's, and it's so blatant, you know. I mean, it's an election year. We all get that. But for the purposes of politics, to obfuscate the fact that this person was here illegally and therefore was completely unvetted, that goes to the heart of the case, you know, because the Venezuelans who are coming in, particularly the Venezuelans, I think it's emerging as a solid storyline that Maduro, the dictator, for lack of a better term of Venezuela, let's not mince words, is emptying out his prisons, just as Castro did in 1980. Mm -hmm. And he's sending his undesirables here. My underst understanding is that 
crime in Venezuela is plummeting. Now, we have no diplomatic relations or exchanges of information with Venezuela. So the Venezuelan migrants that are being admitted under the temporary protected status, which is an expedited admission, those, those folks are coming in completely unvetted. We have no way to know if they were homicidal maniacs back in Caracas. And so to then just allied facts like that that go to the heart of why this person could have done what he did, to me is a disservice to the audience and a disservice to the memory of the deceased. Again, he's only the accused. We don't want to talk about him like he's convicted. But there's been no shortage of other cases recently in the news that make it very clear. We had those uh, gangbangers who attacked the two NYPD cops here in Times Square. Ultimately, we determined that some of them are members of Trende Aragua, the Venezuelan prison gang. Again, completely unvetted. But all you had to see is two of them coming out of court, giving the finger and blowing kisses to the paparazzi. You could just smell prison coming off of them. These guys are completely unintimidated by authority. They are no strangers to danger. We have no way to tell who it is that we're ingesting. And it's unfortunately unsurprising that we're starting to get these storylines. We better get used to them because Maduro has halted the repatriation flights, again, just as Castro did. They're here on a one-way ticket. They're here for good. There's no place to put them. There's no place to send them. And so they're going to end up being career criminals who are going to be wars of the state, likely for the rest of their lives and the rest of our lives. I used to host a show called Crimes That Changed America for Fox Nation, and we covered crimes that resulted in laws being changed Mm. um, or laws being drafted, legislated, so to prevent that particular crime or that lack of sentencing or whatever Mm. from it happening. And essentially you learn from a tragedy, and the tragedy here is that we already know the answer. The laws are there. It's that it's not being enforced, to your point. You mentioned you said Ibarra was essentially by virtue of his status unvetted, but he wasn't unknown to law enforcement. Can you walk us through his history with law enforcement and immigration? So he's, uh, you know, as I said, no stranger to danger. He's taken a number of collars since he's here in the country. Um, it looks like the most serious of those was the endangering, endangering the welfare of a child who turns out to be his son um, here in Queens, New York. Now, that is being misreported as a felony. It's a misdemeanor. But nonetheless, um, he's committed a crime, serious crime, and it's the kind of thing that should be pushed up to ICE for somebody that's in his status um, or out of status, actually, reportedly, that he's here illegally. But um, again, even were that done, there's no place to put him. He's released as it is, according to ICE, because they had no more room for him in the ICE detention facilities, and so he was cut loose. So by definition, there's no place to, there's no room at the end federally. On the state level, we don't lock anybody up here, and because New York is a sanctuary city, we don't uh, advise ICE of situations like this. So ICE is saying that they didn't have a chance to put a detainer on him, and I want to laugh when I hear that because, okay, you put a detainer on him, then where's he going to go? You know, so what are they going to do? They're going to now, okay, now we have to find room for him? Um, Well, you should have found room for him when you had him. And, you know, so the uh, subsequent charge that he gets hit with in Georgia, which is a shoplifting charge, he doesn't show up for, unsurprising, because they have similar laws as here in New York. He was only, he got a citation, and he never returns, and so he bench warranted. So, which means that the judge issued a warrant, said, go pick this guy up, he's under arrest, and nobody came for him. And it just gives you some insight into the lack of alacrity with which law enforcement is operating in these sanctuary cities. 
It's not that they don't want to lock these guys up, but they know that even when they go and get the body, they're facing a bureaucratic boondoggle that doesn't really have any kind of good or easy answer. And so I don't really know what the answer is in light of the fact that they've all already come here and we're stuck with them. As I said, there's no place to put them. There's no place to send them. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, you just published a fascinating op-ed on a particular issue with him as well, and that's on sponsorship. Can you share about that now? So that's another nuance of the system that he seems to have availed himself of, and if he did it, you know that there are thousands, if not millions, of others who have done the same. Under the Temporary Protected Status Program, which is a creature of the Biden administration, people from certain nations have a favorite status, for lack of a better term. And as long as they have a sponsor, they're admitted into the country pretty much automatically, and they have about two years to gain gainful employment. They're kind of the responsibility of the sponsor, and they're supposed to total line, and after that, they can apply for a green card. And if they have not committed any crimes, managed to get gainful employment, et cetera, then they are pretty much home free towards getting status. Problem here is that he put down, apparently, according to the reporting, Covenant House, which is a uh, youth homeless shelter here in New York, as his sponsor. So I reached out to them. I spoke to their executive director and a local director. They informed that they don't know him. They never heard of him. They didn't sponsor him. But they're aware of the fact that Covenant House is being used as a sponsor on migrant forms under this program. And I asked them then as a follow-up. Has DHS or ICE reached out to you regarding this, what apparently is a really glaring loophole in the system? And they told me no. I have no reason not to believe them. So taking them at their word, it looks like if you are somebody who qualifies under the Temporary Protective Status Program, and like I said, there's a number of nations that qualify, just conjure a a sponsor. Put it on a form. Nobody's ever going to check it out. And you walk right in. And it's a wiggle room here in his status, because while it's reported that he's here illegally, if his sponsor is bogus, then yeah, he is illegal. But were his sponsor legal, a legitimate, you know, does exist, then you'd be here legally. And so under the TPS program, if you are sponsored and you have a real sponsor and you come in, you're here legally. But yet, remember something. The sponsors, just like everybody else, including our government, has no ability to vet these folks. And so they have no idea who they're sponsoring. And you say to yourself, well, then why are they doing it? And I'm sure a lot of them are doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. But what we really have to face, Emily, is that like the homeless services industry here in New York, and I say industry cognizantly, (laughs) this is a business. And there are thousands of jobs in the NGO and charity world where people get government money. We are paying for all of this. They get it all through grants. It's our tax money that goes to them. And then that money is being used to get people into the country. And what is even more troubling is that the NGOs have partner associations in the countries of interest, places like Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador. 
And I'm sure the vast majority of the people working in these situations are good people who want to come here for better lives. You know, we always caveat it with that. But you and I both know that if these NGO partners in country are getting tax money from their American NGOs, that a lot of that money is not going where it's supposed to. And I suspect that if we had a crystal ball, and I'm not talking about Covenant House here, I'm talking about NGOs writ large. I want to be clear about that. We would probably find that a lot of American tax money is miraculously finding its way into the coffers of the Venezuelan prison gangs and even characters like Maduro, just like we subsequently found out that all kinds of welfare money from Miami was going into the coffers of Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. And I know that we are paying twice for that because as we've been reporting, as the NGOs have been assisting in the surge across the southern border, the federal government is, re- is reimbursing those NGOs for their costs. But they've already been given grants from our tax dollars and not to mention or notwithstanding yeah. filling the coffers of those illegal cartels and organized crime units. Yeah. It's, it's We're paying for our own invasion. So bringing it back to Lake and Riley and Athens, Georgia specifically, how does, if at all, does that status change how you as a detective would suggest crime prevention there um, and safety and security policies on the campus? So one of the things that um, is very underreported, and if I could plug the the website on the opsdesk.org, my website that I do with a number of other law enforcement officials, we've been tracking all along here the university crimes because an untold aspect of the explosion in quality of life crimes but also violent crimes in our blue cities, which is at this point no secret um, in the Soros prosecutor jurisdictions, et cetera, the, the jurisdictions that have committed themselves to decarceration, um, the schools, campuses that are in or nearby these jurisdictions are seeing a similar and understandable explosion in crime because they are right there and the borders between these campuses and the jurisdictions that I'm talking about are very amorphous. Like take, for instance, say Columbia in upper Manhattan. You just walk down the street, normal New York City street, and then you just walk onto the Columbia campus. So these schools are, in many cases, uh, embedded in areas that are really seeing uh, an uptick in crime. And even in places where they are not embedded in these sorts of jurisdictions, it does seem as if the schools have been very slow on the uptake here to understand that they really need to start to tighten their security. You're starting to see it now. You're starting to see the schools have developed active shooter protocols. There's cameras every place, um, which is one of the things apparently that helped Grabby Barra so quickly. Apparently they went to the video and they got good video on him. Um, the schools have really upgraded this and it's, it's, it's starting to become a, a theme. But every day, and I mean every day, there are a number of shootings or sexual assaults around the country that are starting to really make news. And, um, you know, as somebody, as a former inspector, retired now, I say to myself, if my kid were going off to school, especially, and I know this is politically incorrect, but especially were it my daughter, she would be going to school with lecture upon lecture from me ringing in her ears. And she'd also probably go with a pocket device that was at the very least pepper spray if it's legal there, if not uh, a loud whistle, 
something that she can fight back with, something very defensive. And I hate to say it because college is a socializing aspect of American society for a long time now. It's something that people go away to to kind of grow up and away from their parents and all of that. But it's become rife with danger. Are the statistics low? Sure, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure it's a it's not a likelihood that you're going to be the victim of a crime. But, you know, just look at the last couple of weeks. We've seen double murder in Colorado. We have this crime. Um, the there's, There was a, uh, a serious uh, series of, uh, of cases down in Virginia. And, um, you know, Temple University in Philadelphia got so bad that the university president said, I'm going to move on campus to demonstrate how safe it is. He only lasted a couple of months. He moved off and resigned because Temple is just, you know, it's embedded in Philadelphia. You have Krasner there, who's a Soros prosecutor, and they just don't want to cop to the fact that they have a serious crime problem. So to your point, you know, as as I said, formal law enforcement, um, just if your child is going away to school, look at the Cleary reports. Every school is required by law to put out something called a Cleary report that reports the on-campus crime. Uh, that can be a little bit of a fuzzy standard, so you also want to look at the crime that's you know being reported in, in the actual city. But crunch these numbers and say to yourself, do I want my kid to go to this school? Because uh, I'd be quite worried. Paul, you are always such a wealth of information and perspective. Thank you. Are there final words or thoughts that you want to leave with listeners today about this case or in general? So I think first and foremost, we have to acknowledge that we have a real problem and it looks to be coalescing around Venezuela. I don't mean to pick, uh, particularly pick them out. I've been to Venezuela back in the day, pre-Chavez, you know, beautiful country and the people were lovely. But under Chavez, uh, things have gotten so bad that they were literally eating the zoo animals. All right. That's how bad the economy got there. Um, you know, that's an old factoid that, you know, you hear now. And um, we need a fix because... Nobody is saying that all the migrants are bad. Nobody's saying that a majority of the migrants are bad. But at some point, you have to acknowledge that we are importing headaches that we didn't previously have. The administration has to come up with a fix. That abysmal immigration bill that came out of the Senate that, for some unknown reason to me, hooked our own border security to the security of two of the oldest ongoing conflicts in the world, Russia and Gaza, I mean, did we really think it was a good idea in order to fix our own border situation that we make it dependent on some sort of a fix in a biblical conflict? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think that that groundswell is uh, occurring. As you say, there are crimes that do cause legislation and changes, see changes in the uh, criminal justice world. And I think that this Lake and Riley case, God bless her, I think that hopefully it won't have gone in vain because it really does feel like a watershed crime, and it damn well should be. It's hard for me to take a clinical view of these things and to talk about them on the air. I've done a few hits where I found myself getting emotional, mm. and I was yelling. I, wanted, I was one of the hits. The guy was looking at me. <laughs> I want to see who it was. Look at me like, Moral, calm down. So, um, yeah, it's hard to be clinical about these. You know, I think of my nieces and stuff. Yeah, of you course. Know? So, anyway, that's the... That's why it was hard to hear, frankly, a congresswoman out of California who... So she downplayed exactly that. And while she noted that this was the tragic loss of an innocent young girl's life, she sort of dined to say, but we shouldn't, this, you know, 
we can't change laws because of this. And it was so troubling because that's exactly what we do. One life is one life too many. One life can change the world if you enact or enforce laws because of it. Um, and it was so disheartening to hear that, especially from someone who's currently also running for senator with a you know pledge on her website yeah. that she will fearlessly protect California families. And apparently that doesn't extend to Georgia families. I was really frustrated when I saw that. And your whole point about the, the campuses I mean, I feel the same. If I had a child, if I had a daughter, I mean, I don't, I, I'm less tempered than you. She'd, she'd have an AK-47 strapped to her back the whole time. Yeah. And you, you talk about it, and I think this is really apt and worth underscoring, that campuses are different in every scenario. I lived in the Greek system for three full years, which was re- protocol at my large university, um, but that's technically off campus. But really, it's, you know, we all picture it as part of it's right Right. across the street, but that is off. And just one block away from that is normal neighborhoods where then we lived our senior year. So that's technically off campus. Crime is categorized and cataloged differently. And then one block in the other direction is a very urban, massive avenue that was the source of a lot of, we, we called it the Av, you know, we called Av rats, like it's just a gritty, grimy sort of scenario. And when you mix a lot of, a lot of tenors there, including alcohol, including social development and everything going on. You hope as parents and as fellow Americans that your kids are going to be taken care of to the extent that the knowns will be protected. And the thought that there's a surge happening, that there's sort of an infiltration happening, the ease with which the sort of shadows can infiltrate what should be really protected yeah. bubbles for these kids. Yeah. I mean, that's frightening. Yeah, it should be a safe space where, like we say, they're socializing and ostensibly they're learning what will be their careers, you know. Yeah. You know what will change all this, unfortunately, is it's going to be um, not only crimes like this where there's a groundswell, but um, also money because what's going to happen is people are going to stop sending their kids to these schools and what we're also going to get is litigation. There's a lot of liability embedded in this stuff and like for instance the sponsorship program if you've agreed to sponsor somebody and and you didn't keep an eye on them for the required two years you didn't do what you said you would you would do and um, you know these uh, this person goes out and commits all kinds of crimes you know you're gonna start to see lawsuits filed and unfortunately when somebody has to write a check they pay attention. And I think you can probably guarantee that there's probably a lawsuit coming right at the nose of the University of Georgia at Athens at some point here, in light of the fact that he was here there living, that is, Ibarra was there living with his brother, who was also an illegal, who also had committed a number of crimes, whose green card was fake, and who was employed by the university in a university cafeteria. You know, you start to get to, you know, the arcane issues of foreseeability, et cetera. That's all legalistic. But the bottom line is there are some cases that are so egregious in their outcomes that government settles and says, you know what? We don't need this being plastered on every headline. Settle this case because we look really bad. And it's a state school, so the pockets are deep. So. These are the kind of things I think you're going to start to see. And, you know, it does seem like the current administration is finally waking up to the fact that they've created a real problem here. But, you know, I got to say, just as a final thought here, did nobody think any of this through? Did nobody, when they were sitting around the conference table and they were conjuring this temporary protected status idea, did nobody say to themselves, well, what happens when we take these people? They're completely unvetted. We didn't realize who they were. They start committing terrible crimes and then we can't send them back. 
Secretary Mayorkas, what are we going to do then? Nobody raised their hand and asked that question? Apparently not. And I'm just waiting for the adults to come back into the room here, because otherwise you and I could be doing stories like this for a good while. I hope not. But I hope to see you soon, Paul. Thank you, as always. Again, you're such a wealth of information and perspective, and we'll be sure to have you back as soon as developments arise. Thank you, Emily. Always a pleasure. To hear more stories like this, you can listen to our past episodes on the Fox True Crime Podcast. Go to foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts to listen and subscribe. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.